This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, Edge of Sports fans. We've got some breaking news related to this podcast. After we recorded, Muhammad Ali Jr. and Khalila Camacho Ali came to Washington, D.C. to testify about being detained at Fort Lauderdale International Airport. As he was trying to return home from Washington, D.C. to Florida, Muhammad Ali Jr. was detained again by airport security. It looks like he's being targeted. This will not stand, and we will continue to speak to our guest this week, Chris Mancini, the attorney for Khalila Camacho Ali and Muhammad Ali Jr., as this case develops. Hashtag Ali versus Trump. Welcome back to the Edge of Sports podcast, now brought to you by The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin, and every week, this is your spot for the collision of sports and politics. This week, we are talking to former U.S. attorney and current legal representative of Khalila Camacho Ali and her son, Muhammad Ali Jr., Chris Mancini. If you haven't heard the story, Khalila Ali and Muhammad Ali Jr. are both U.S. citizens who were detained at Fort Lauderdale Airport after being asked these two questions. Are you a Muslim? And where did you get your name? Now they're fighting back with a full campaign, and we're going to speak with Chris Mancini like he's Angelo Dundee and find out the full fight plan. Also, I've got some choice words about FIFA and teams in Israeli settlements, a Just Stand Up award to My King Johnson, a Just Sit Your Ass Down award to Amari Stoudemire, and a special Kaepernick watch with some talk back from co-producer of the show David Tigaboo. And more surprises than that in store. You just got to listen and find out. But first, let's talk to the legal rep of Khalila Ali, the Angelo Dundee of the fight that is to come against Trump's Muslim ban, Chris Mancini. What happened at the Fort Lauderdale airport on February 11th? Well, what happened to both Khalila Camacho Ali and to Muhammad Ali is something that's been going on now for some time. And as best as I can tell from speaking to Muslim uh, organizations like CARE, C-A-I-R, and others, the, there's a 1% chance that you're going to be targeted for secondary inspection when you come in from out of the country, 1% of all travelers. But it appears as though Muslim travelers are being targeted at a rate of 50 to 75% depending upon the amount of time that the uh, Customs and Border Patrol has to devote to those secondary inspections. Now, real quick, is that affected by whether you are a U.S. citizen at all, or is this across the board? Absolutely not. Take, for example, just, just take the example of the Ali's, both U.S. citizens, both born in the United States, both famous people in their own right, both identifying themselves as the wife and the son, respectively, of one of the greatest uh, champions of all time, didn't make a difference. 
the, the only difference between the detention of Khalil Kamacha Ali and Muhammad Ali at the time was due to the fact that Khalil Kamacha Ali is a very boy, you know, she does not suffer fools gladly. She fights for her rights immediately, and they rolled uh, Muhammad, who was in a wheelchair because he had had a uh, problem with his knee, they rolled him out of sight and took him right into the room. So she was arguing with them every step of the way once she realized that this was about whether or not she was a Muslim. She said, what's that got to do with the price of eggs, as she put it? Are my documents in order? Why are you detaining me? What's my religion got to do with anything? I'm, you know, she pulled out a picture of, uh, of her and the late champ, and she was waving it under their faces, and she just gave them hell, basically. And Muhammad was taken to a room and locked in. He couldn't do anything. So he sat there for that entire hour, 45 minutes, where they kept popping in and out of the room, asking him the same questions over and over again. Wow. Now, what is Khalil Ali doing when her son is being wheeled away? What's her reaction? First, she's got a half an hour where she's fighting for her own release. You know, first she's got to convince these guys, yeah, I'm a Muslim, so what? Let me go. You know, I haven't done anything. What have I done? Why, why are you detaining me? So after that half an hour expires and they let her go, now she's running around the airport asking anybody and everybody, where's my son? What, am I, what are they doing to my son? How do I get my son back? You know, that image, Chris, is, is harrowing. The idea of her at... I believe she's 67 years old. Just just the thought of this woman of great distinction in history running around the airport trying to find her son is a brutal image. Yeah, psychologically, what I think is interesting about that, Dave, is when she tells the story, she she's finally had it. She's running around the airport. She's asking everybody she knows. She finally finds some Metro Dade police officers and she's begging them to do something. And in her mind, she links up the fact that she's got these officers and they're trying to find out what's going on to the fact that Muhammad was actually released. But actually Metro Dade, Miami police, they have no jurisdiction whatsoever in the immigration enclave and customs enclave. That is federal property and the feds can do anything they want there. And, and no state law officer, law enforcement officer is even allowed in the place. So, but in her mind, when she finally got some police officers to listen to her, they let uh, Muhammad go. I just think that's a testament to how frazzled and how upset she was that, you know, she thinks finally some other law enforcement officer stepped in to help her. Not true, but I think that's how upset she was. Now, is it true that Muhammad Ali Jr. was asked, where did you get your name? Well, they, they, they were both asked variants of that question. And what's interesting about that is that I've been getting uh, these reports that are coming to us now because we've become a lightning rod for this. It's, a, it's like uh, what Billy Crystal said about Muhammad Ali at his funeral, about how he was a lightning bolt and he lit up everything around him, right? And I thought that was a fantastic uh, description of, of uh, the late champ. But now the Ali's are, are like becoming, I don't know what to call it, the poster children, the, the, the lightning rods. They're all calling. I'm getting calls from all over the country. Please, we've been waiting for something like this to happen to a, a famous person so that that person could become a spokesman for, the, for those of us who have no voice. And so um, that's exactly how the Ali's look at this now. They've been given a duty. They've been given an assignment. And now they've got to carry it out. 
And what we're getting, going back to your question, David, and then I'm sorry, just let me go back to your question. What we're getting are these profile questions that have been collected from all over the country from other Muslims who have been similarly detained. And the questions are, do you pray five times a day? Uh, what mosque do you visit? What, what's the name of your imam? Uh, you know, uh, do, you, do you ever hear anybody espouse any uh, extremist views? Uh, and on and on and on. And to the, oh, and they ask for their Facebook access uh, codes. They ask for uh, anything that they want. While they're there and they've got them in custody, they, they imply that if you don't tell us this information, I'm not sure they're saying it, but they imply you're, you're at our mercy. And if you don't give us this most personal information, well, then your, your next stop is a federal jail. Chris, of course, custom officials can ask you for anything, but can they legally demand access to your Facebook passcodes? Is that something you have to give over or you're going to go to jail? Well, don't forget, we have this little thing called the Fifth Amendment, right? And you have the right to counsel if you're being questioned by a federal law enforcement officer. If they're conducting a criminal investigation in that context, the argument would be, if you wanted to make it, I don't have to answer your questions. I have a Fifth Amendment privilege. Their response would be, but this isn't a criminal investigation. We're just conducting an entry inspection. And your response would be, I don't know what you guys are doing, and this is a matter that's going to have to go to court to determine whether or not you have the right to ask me for my Facebook and this other information. You're in a gray area here, Dave. It shouldn't be a gray area, but it's an area that's going to end up in a court for the courts to determine. Because, you know, everybody is subject to inspection. That's absolutely right. Question is, do you have to answer questions which do not directly relate to your admissibility to the United States? And remember, they're asking these questions of U.S. citizens. I mean, they're also, they're also asking these questions of green card holders and, you know, and, and other visa holders. But these are born in the American, dyed-in-the-wool United States citizens. If you or I showed up at Customs, Dave, and they started asking me, are you a Christian? I mean, I'd have a meltdown, you know? I mean, we fought for these rights, right? Well, let me ask you this hypothetically. If you, Chris Mancini, former U.S. attorney, were asked for your Facebook codes, how would you respond? Me, personally, I'd tell them to go to hell and bring me to the next U.S. magistrate if that's what you want. If you think you can detain me, you go right ahead. But that's become, I'm an ex-United States attorney with with you know, powerful friends and, you know, an unblemished record. What do you do if you're an immigrant, right? You're scared out of your mind. This is the government of the United States. What are they going to do to me? I say again, this is a matter that's going to have to be litigated, how far they're allowed to go. And my personal opinion is that they've stepped way over the line. The constitutional line is clear. But in, but what what's the history of America, Dave? Whoever controls the football wins the game. And right now, they've got control. In those customs enclosures, the only thing that's going to matter is what a, what a judge, what a federal judge and a court of appeals, and maybe the Supreme Court eventually says. And you know what our president thinks about that. He and his minions keep saying what he says is not subject to review by anybody. You know, that's an interesting twist on the United States Constitution and the separation of powers. They don't exist anymore in the world of Donald Trump. You know, so I don't know. We're in for a fight. So you mentioned before, Khalila Camacho Ali, that she felt called upon to tell the world about what happened. So what's the plan? Are you coming to D.C., enlisting allies? What's the fight plan moving forward? 
you know, what she's drawing on is that vast experience of having fought side by side with her husband for their Muslim rights. So this is the, the depth, the well that's being tapped in here now. And I'll tell you something, she's a fearsome force when it comes to this. See, that's what people don't know about Khalil Ali. She was married to the champ from 1967 to 77, going with him to the Supreme Court, traveling with him when his passport was confiscated, being by his side when he got a five-year prison sentence. So she has walked this path before. Yeah, and when you live that, Dave, you're not afraid of anything. When you live through what, what they live through, the, she ain't afraid of Donald Trump, I'll tell you that. She'll take on anybody when it comes to this. This is embedded in her DNA. This was what she was born. Well, I don't know if she was born to do this, but from a young age, because she was very young. Remember back then? She was a young bride. Yeah, so, so she stood, you know, stood right side by side during those formative years, and she had the opportunity at that time to walk away from all this, and she didn't. And she's never run from a fight in her life because she she believes that's how the only way you, you should be in this country. If you've got a right, you've got to fight for it. It's simple to her. A equals B. Well, you are the attorney. Will, will there be a lawsuit? Oh, yeah. I think this thing is inevitably going to court. And what's so interesting about this is it's been a long time coming. And it's just another one of those, what I was saying before, lightning rod moments or illuminating moments when things just seem to come together in history. You can call it a confluence of events. I think it's cause and effect. I think it's just been waiting for the right person to come along uh, to bring this matter all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. And I think the Ali's are the perfect people to do it. And this country is going to be riveted watching it play out. So what kind of support are you getting from prominent names, particularly in the boxing community. What kind of support are they getting at this time? They're gathering support as we speak. I can tell you right now, uh, Larry Holmes, um, uh, God, there's a list. Uh, I talked to Bone Crusher Smith yesterday, Eddie Mustafa. Wow, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. That's one of my heroes. Yeah, that's right. He signed up. John Carlos of Olympic fame. He signed up yesterday. Um, the, I, there's a whole bunch of celebrities in addition to boxers, who oh, Pedro Duran, um, you know, the family of, the, of Hector Camacho, uh, the Sphinx family. Um, I could go on and on and on. The point is the boxing world is solidly behind uh, Muhammad and his, and his mother. They're there. They've already signed up. Now we're, we're, they're reaching out to the celebrity world to see who's going to join forces with them over really what's a very simple issue, Dave. Strip all this down, you know, Muslim, Jew, Christian. What are we talking about? We're talking about the constitutional right of freedom of religion. That's it. This ain't that hard, but it's certain people are making it real hard. It shouldn't be. Chris Mancini, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this, given that we're doing this interview just after uh, the Trump team announced Muslim ban 2.0. The first one was struck down with extreme force by the judiciary. Do you expect something similar this time around? Yeah, well, this is what's amazing to me about the Trump administration is how, for lack of a better term, arrogant they are. You would think with all the resources available to the president of the United States, he would be relying upon his lawyers to advise him as based upon our long and lengthy series of case law regarding equal protection, due process, the, the fundamental issues that are built into the Bill of Rights. You would think that first order would have been crafted with an eye towards trying to avoid the disaster that resulted from that first order. 
Why? I can't explain it except arrogance, simple arrogance. Going back to the concept that my uh, my decrees are not subject to review. Well, they got kicked in the teeth. So now they've done a better job of taking a look at the establishment cause and what happens when you favor one religion over another in this country. But this second order still runs afoul, in my opinion, of the due process and especially the equal protection clause. So these are issues that are going to be litigated all over again. I had a talk with the governor of, uh, of Washington the other day, Bisbee, and we were talking about, um, yeah, and he was he is staunchly in favor of his attorney general and the other attorney generals from the United States that are litig- litigating this, carrying this issue forward. And I had to laugh because I was talking to him because I said, what do you think Donald Trump thinks about states' rights now, buddy? After <laughs> After that, you know, he's always talking about states' rights. Well, he doesn't seem to understand that you unleash, you know, 50 states, you're going to get 50 answers, you know, 50 different opinions. So this is going to be very interesting. That's all I can tell you. From a constitutional point of view, it's a great fight. Given how passionate you are about this particular issue and about this family, I have to ask, when was the first time in your life you were aware that there was this person named Muhammad Ali? And how did you come to be close to Khalila and her family? I was uh, I was born in Rochester, New York. And in Rochester, you may remember back in 72, had its own riots. And my family lived right uh, in the suburbs, but my father's business was located right downtown. And that part of town burned. So I was a huge supporter of everything Ali, you know, anything, all throughout my childhood. My father was a Republican, so we never really quite connected but the one thing we did connect on was the mistreatment of the black community in rochester new york so deep in my history wow and that turned you on to ali so how did you come to know kalila well i was fortunate enough to uh meet a gentleman who runs uh, silver screen artists a guy by the name of frank Bellata, and he introduced me to kalila some time ago and uh, I've been talking to Kalila for a long time about the stuff she does. This is not something new to her taking up a cause. The other thing she really does a lot is she goes to schools all over the country. Heck, she was coming back from a Black History Conference in Jamaica when she got to take. And she speaks about things that are of, of great interest to her that, as I said, are embedded in her DNA Things like uh, bullying in schools, that's one of her favorite topics. She always talks about how the champ would, would not stand for that type of behavior. And, you know, she's brought that issue home in, in very uh, personal ways by telling anecdotes of her time living with the champ. Then I saw her speak a few times, and she just made me laugh, you know, because she always makes you laugh. Everything's mixed in with some humor. And so I just came to respect her as a person. And now I have even more respect for her than I've ever had before. Chris Mancini, thank you so much for your time. Know that you have probably more allies than you even realize. So many people inspired by the champ, his family, and the fact that they are stepping forward to fight this fight. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Chris Mancini, former U.S. attorney and the person currently representing Khalila Camacho Ali and Muhammad Ali Jr. in the fight going forward. Now, a quick word from our sponsor before we get to choice words. 
Edge of Sports is produced by The Nation magazine, and they got a great issue out right now about the future of media. We saw how influential the right-wing media echo chamber was during Trump's campaign, and this issue lays out how the left can build a powerful media infrastructure of its own. And by the way, the cover art on this issue, it's Gary Trudeau, it's Doonesbury, it's original Trudeau art. It's a cover you're going to want just to frame. Subscribe to The Nation at thenation.com slash subscribe. And now I've got some choice words. This week it is about the building of soccer teams on settlements in the West Bank and the controversy that's swirling around FIFA's inaction to do anything about it. Here's the situation for Palestinian and Arab soccer players in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. For some time, this situation has been dire at best. On one side of the wall... You've got segregated youth teams, racist abuse, and heckling, including charming chants such as death to the Arabs. And on the other side, there is checkpoint detention, imprisonment, and the bombing of soccer stadiums, which have become regular features of what is supposed to be the people's game. Given the powerful role that soccer plays as a point of community cohesion in the West Bank and Gaza, this everyday violence has been interpreted as a full frontal attack on civil society, normalcy, and hope in the Palestinian world. Now, soccer in this region has been so troubled for so long that FIFA, the international body that oversees global soccer, has a specific committee that's been set up just to monitor Israel-Palestine relations. One of the problems in front of them has been how to handle the fact that Israel's National Soccer League has six teams that are based in illegal, universally condemned settlements that are products of Netanyahu's political approach of expanding into Palestinian land in the West Bank. The existence of these teams comprises a violation of international law. It also conflicts with FIFA's own bylaws, which state that member organizations cannot compete within the national borders of another territory without permission. For Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, this issue is bigger than soccer. It's symbolic of his expansionist plans. He has been on a full-scale offensive to keep FIFA from casting out these teams. It's a much bigger issue to him than just one of sports. His government's claim, and this is disputed by international law, is that these settlements are actually on Israeli land. This week, a wide coalition of human rights organizations has announced their opposition to FIFA's decision to drag their feet on this issue indefinitely. The Palestinian Football Association, Human Rights Watch, the UN Special Advisor on Sports, who's named Wilfred Lemke, and Palestinian solidarity organizations around the world have demanded that soccer teams based in illegal settlements be moved or disbanded. In addition, a petition has been presented and addressed to new FIFA president Gianni Johnny Baby Infantino that's been signed by 10,000 football fans asking for resolution of this question. Their impatience is warranted. Initially, the FIFA Monitoring Committee on Israel-Palestine was expected to deliver a report to FIFA by October 2016, but Infantino has quashed the report until it can be unveiled at the larger FIFA Congress in May where the vast landscape of competing interests and the outsized influence of countries like the United States will make passage of anything deemed controversial a near impossibility. 
This decision to suppress the report in the name of constructive engagement with Israel feels particularly hollow given the decision by Infantino in 2014 when he was the powerful head of the Union of European Football Associations, or UEFA, to ban clubs in the annexed Crimea region from competing in Russian tournaments. Infantino was not open to constructive engagement with Russia because their actions violated clear FIFA rules. But he seems to feel differently when it comes to Israel. It is an argument that rings particularly hollow to campaigners in South Africa who are far too familiar with this kind of equivocation. Here are the words of Kwari Kekana, who's part of a South African-Palestinian solidarity group. He, this is what he said. South Africans know too well how constructive engagement helped perpetuate the suffering of black South Africans and apartheid. Similarly, the false premise of the FIFA Monitoring Committee is that the parties can talk the issues out, but there is no middle ground when it comes to international law and FIFA's own rules. FIFA must end this sham process of committees or face widespread protest and condemnation for its double standards. End quote. The answer to whether FIFA should recognize teams that operate in illegal settlements should be common sense. Instead, we get obfuscation and delays in a situation that should be, pardon the mixed sports metaphor, a slam dunk. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award brought to you by nobody. Just for people standing up. This week it goes to Tempe, Arizona, high school football star, incoming first year at the University of Arizona, and all-state defensive end, who is also, by the way, about to become the first openly gay scholarship football player in Division I sports history, Mike King Johnson. This guy is a hell of a football player, six foot four, 225 pounds, a blue chipper who verbally committed to UCLA before deciding to stay close to home. He's a hell of a human being by all accounts, and he will be described as a trailblazer just because he's open about who he is. There's no doubt there's risk in this decision in the violent, hyper-macho world of football, and he's spoken about thinking his decision puts a target on his back, using that exact phrase, and yet also it has to be noted that this target talk causes Johnson about as much worry as some dust on his shoulder. I asked another trailblazer, tennis legend Martina Navratilova, for her thoughts about My King Johnson's emergence. And she said, each coming out helps push the needle when one day it won't even be remotely newsworthy. Amen to that. But the most hopeful part of this story is the way his teammates and his coaches, who've known him since middle school, have responded to news of My King coming out. They've responded with shrugs. And his mom responded with hugs shrugs and hugs this is the future for lgbt athletes in sports and if my king is the future the just sit your ass down award sit your ass down. goes to someone living decidedly in the past that's amare stoudemire former nba all-star uh somebody who's currently playing professional ball in israel and no this is not an effort just to create an israeli common thread through different parts of the show he just happens to play in israel he converted to judaism more power to him for that but not so much power to him for what he said 
about the idea of playing with a gay teammate, he said that he would sooner shower across the street than shower with a gay teammate. Now, I could respond to this in all many kinds of ways, but I'd rather let John Amici's response speak for me. If you don't know who John Amici is, he is the first and at this point only NBA player who has come out of the closet after retirement. This is what John Amici said about Amari Stoudemire. He said, These are serious times, and we need serious people to lead important conversations, not petulant man-children spouting puerile prejudice. There is already one too many of those holding court in the media, and the world is poorer for it. Within the world of sport, there are plenty of true role models, on and off the floor, whose words are carefully chosen to uplift and integrate society, not join Trump and his grinning cabal in their locker room banter. In these tumultuous times, these true role models are the men and women whose voices we need to disseminate to every corner, not a braying jackass making a desperate grab for relevance amongst a constituency destined for extinction. And then John Amici added this last note. He said, Also, could someone please tell this man to stop flattering himself? It's embarrassing. End quote. So that's John Amici for you. That's the response to Amari Stoudemire. By the way, a quick addendum to the Just Stand Up Award. Something coming in right under the wire. Got to give a shout out to Roy Williams. Not the former wide receiver, in the NFL, not the former Dallas Cowboys safety, but Roy Williams, the coach of UNC basketball, the Tar Heels, who during the ACC tournament, 3-2-1, who during the ACC tournament just said to everybody that we've got this guy in Washington who, quote, tweets out more bullshit than anyone else, end quote. Look, Roy Williams is in North Carolina. He's an older white dude. And I just love this revolt of the older white basketball coaches that we spoke about last week. But it's not just that. And it's not even just that Roy Williams mentors Dean Smith, somebody who had a consistent stance throughout his life against racism, the death penalty, and around all sorts of issues that made him a bit of an anomaly in North Carolina. It has to do with the broader mood in the Tar Heel State. Look, I know people in North Carolina, and it is generally accepted by everybody there, whether you're right wing, left wing, or what have you, that in the state of North Carolina, the election was stolen for Donald Trump. It's not even a question for people. Like the issues of voter suppression, the long lines, the cutting down of voting hours. I mean, people just know that. There's a reason why polls consistently showed one side winning, and yet somehow Donald Trump wins in a squeaker. I'm not saying North Carolina would have swung the election. I'm not saying voter suppression is the reason why Hillary lost. But at least in the state of North Carolina, there is a sour taste in everybody's mouth. And I think Roy Williams was reflecting that reality as well. A quick word about the Start Making Sense podcast. If you like Edge of Sports, you've got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people, people like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. 
Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now let's get to a segment we do every week on the show that we call Kaepernick Watch, where we look at the latest social justice happenings of now free agent quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Hopefully by the time this show goes to air, he'll be a free agent no longer. I mean, my goodness, if Mike Glennon is getting $15 million a year to play for the Chicago Bears, if even Jay Cutler is getting phone calls, it is absurd to me that Colin Kaepernick cannot find work. But shout out to Colin Kaepernick for two things. First and foremost, this past week was International Women's Day uh, and the day of the women's strike that took place not just throughout this country but all over the world. Colin Kaepernick released a video on that day that was a tribute to a woman named Yuri Kochiyama, who was a prominent Japanese-American human rights and black power activist and a woman who was actually there in the Autobahn ballroom when Malcolm X was killed And she held him in her arms and tried to resuscitate him as they waited for an ambulance to arrive. And Yuri Kochiyama lived another darn near 40 years speaking about the issues that she cared about and that animated her life. Here's what Colin Kaepernick had to say. Yuri Kochiyama was a prominent Japanese-American human rights and black power activist. Yuri's life forever changed when she and members of her family were incarcerated in Japanese internment camps. In 1963, Yuri met Malcolm X and the two began what would become a lifelong friendship. Yuri was in the audience at Harlem's Audubon Ballroom when Malcolm X was assassinated. A photograph shows Yuri offering comfort to the slain leader, yet there is no mention of her by name. Throughout her life, Yuri Kochiyama fought for countless causes, including reparations for Japanese Americans interned during World War II, Puerto Rican independence, and nuclear disarmament. Yuri continued her activism until she died at the age of 93. As we celebrate Women's History Month, let us remember Yuri Kochiyama by our words. Keep expanding your horizon, decolonize your mind, and cross borders. Know your history, Women's History Month. Yuri Kochiyama. That was Colin Kaepernick on Yuri Kochiyama. And I got to give another shout out to Colin Kaepernick as well, because through no direct actions of his own, he was in the news this week as well, because this past couple weeks we've seen the NFL Combine and more importantly, the leaks that always come out after the Combine as far as what players were asked about. Now, if you know anything about the NFL Combine, what you know it is, is a lot of general managers and executives basically trying to keep their jobs. They're trying to quantify the unquantifiable because the fact remains, no matter who they pick, it's a roll of the dice whether they're going to wash out or not. I don't care if you're the most sage expert or some guy who just got hired because your dad owns the team or if you're the Washington football team and every year is an absolute dysfunctional mess because you're owned by an idiot who makes James Dolan look charming. So this is what you have in the football landscape. And so every year they come up with these questions that somehow will glean the truth about whether a player will somehow be a success or not, trying to quantify the unquantifiable. They ask questions like, and this is all true, if you were a fish, what kind of fish would you be? And if you had to kill somebody, would you use a knife or a gun? That's actually a question people are asked. Would you use a knife or a gun? But this year, the question that a lot of players were asked was, are you sympathetic with the protests of Colin Kaepernick? They are doing a political litmus test, a shoulder pad McCarthyism 
to try to figure out which players will be political troublemakers on their squad. And apparently, according to a lot of leaks, a lot of players were like, yeah, I was sympathetic to what Colin Kaepernick did. And hey, if that's going to be a problem with the NFL, then they might have to figure out where to find a whole new crop of players because when Colin Kaepernick speaks out about racism and police brutality, that will resonate with this generation of players coming up into the league. So that's some Kaepernick watch right there, is that even when he's not around, he's around. And that again speaks to everybody who said that his protest did not have much of an impact. Oh, they had an impact, and that impact is still being felt. And now my co-producer, David Tigaboo, he's got some thoughts about Colin Kaepernick, what I just said, some pushback questions, comments. I don't know what he has, but he has some things he wants to raise. What you got, Big Tig? Hey, man, yeah, so I had a, I had a couple questions. So... You're telling me that the NFL is really upset about this Kaepernick protest, and now they're asking questions at the NFL Draft Combine about whether potential NFL athletes are sympathetic. Is that a question of just being against any kind of political stance being taken, or is it a very particular kind of politics that the NFL seems to have a problem with? You know, I think it's a combination of two different factors. One, I think NFL executives tend to be very conservative politically. If you look at things like uh, money loaning, if you look at uh, political donations, if you look at things of that nature, they do tend to be very conservative. And also, if you look at some of the reporting that was done when Colin Kaepernick first started protesting and the response from players speaking off the record or on background and executives speaking off the record and on background, uh, these things were very, very at loggerheads. Players were largely sympathetic, even a lot of white players, largely sympathetic with at least his right to take a knee. And yet when you flipped it around to executives, there was absolute fury and rage. Now, one of the things about this that's also complicated are these reports that have largely been debunked, like this idea that the drop in NFL ratings were due to Colin Kaepernick. And But you've seen a lot of NFL executives sort of hang their hat on that and say, no, 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 I have nothing against the cause. Racism is bad. But at the same time, he's hurting the business. No, look, don't buy that for one half of one second. This is a political hit job by a very conservative force inside the NFL. They tend to be anti-union, they tend to be anti-player, and they tend to be very pro-bottom line. That's who's at the top of the NFL executive food chain. So would better enforcement of policies like the Rooney Rule, does, would that help stem the tide? Would that make things better? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, logic certainly dictates that it would, that there are certain political conclusions that flow from diversity, like the idea that if you have uh, women as executives, they would be more sympathetic to following through NFL guidelines about uh, violence against women, for example, the same way we would think that if there were more executives of color, there would be more sympathy if athletes of color have something to say about racism in the United States. Uh, that being said, we also know that there are some very particular particulars, as it were, to getting those kinds of jobs. And we have to be wary of when diversity just becomes different colored faces in high places if it's not accompanied by actual changes in policy and approach. And so while we should fight for more diversity at the upper echelons in the NFL, I think we have to realize that it's not a cure-all in and of itself. The business is far too ruthless for that. So where do you think my man Colin Kaepernick ends up? You know, that's a really interesting question because 
I don't see Colin Kaepernick starting in the NFL next year. At most, I see him getting signed on to be a backup somewhere. Now, where that is, again, it's like I'm a little bit bewildered about where that's going to be. And there certainly is the chance that he won't get signed somewhere. But that's so ludicrous when you look at it on the face. Because in the midst of this train wreck of a San Francisco 49ers season, dude actually was, I believe, 17 touchdowns thrown, four picks, was second in the NFL in rushing yards for a quarterback, um, the most uh, yards per average of any player with a certain number of carries in the NFL, actually. People don't realize that. Um, and, and this is something that I read in um, one of the San Francisco papers, and it's a great point, is that no quarterback was better in the league when their pocket absolutely collapsed upon them. I mean, San Francisco had the worst offensive line by several metrics in the NFL. And Colin Kaepernick somehow was able not just to survive, but even thrive. I mean, what was wrong with that team last year had nothing to do with who was behind center. And also, the people in that organization, on a football level, respect the hell out of him when it comes to his study acumen, when it comes to his commitment, when it comes to his physical commitment as well. He's apparently in the best shape of his life, and this is someone who's just a couple years removed away from being called by Ron Jaworski, the future greatest quarterback in NFL history. Remember, that was Jaws' assessment of the young Kaepernick. So the idea that he couldn't catch on somewhere, I mean, is an absolute absurdity to me, but it could happen. It absolutely could happen, and I feel like the NFL Draft Combine is a tea leaf in that direction. If Tim Tebow, the Tim Tebow that we know, has the same football skill set that Colin Kaepernick has, how quickly do teams seriously consider picking him up? If Tim Tebow had Colin Kaepernick's current skill set, he'd be on a Wheaties box. You look at the amount of attention that Tebow has gotten this week for, what, hitting into two double plays? I think it speaks to the idea that if Tebow was marginally, marginally applicable as an NFL quarterback, let alone what Colin Kaepernick did, then his time in the league would be uh, nice and cozy. Well, that's all we have this week on the Edge of Sports podcast. Can't wait for you guys to tune in next week where we have special guest Jamel Hill, the new anchor of The Six. That's the new nightly sports center show on ESPN. But I do want to thank Chris Mancini. If everybody wants to keep up about what's happening in the Ali case, just look at hashtag Ali versus Trump. Thank you to my co-producers, David Tigabu and Daniel Baker. Thank you so much to everybody at The Nation magazine. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. If you want to call in any opinions on the new rebooted show, don't hesitate to give us a ring, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Don't forget, we have a Twitter handle now, at Edge of Sports Pod. Remember, you can always listen to past episodes of the podcast at www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. Please check us out. Please subscribe at your podcast app of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, what have you. Please leave a rating. Please write a comment. Please tell a friend. All of that helps a bunch to what we're trying to do, and that's independent sports media from the bottom up. Thank you to everybody for listening. We are out of here. Stay frosty, people. Peace.